We're going to look at chapters 8, 9, and 10 today. Uh, you, after today, uh, well, I hope you know some good stuff, important stuff, significant stuff. But after today, you may be a few of the people in the city of High Point that know where you can find the sea serpent ad in the Bible. Um, I'll make sure you know that before you get out of here because there is a reference uh, and to, to sea serpent in the Bible. And that sea serpent is named in the Bible. Um, but you didn't know that. If you did, that would impress me. But um, anyway, so let's make our way through these. Um, there's three chapters. First chapter, Two Narrow Escapes, um, which is chapter 8. Um, do you remember what the narrow escapes are? The sea serpent. And let me at this point call it Death Water Island or Goldwater Island. Those are the two narrow escapes. So they're aboard the ship. They're sailing. Remember where they're going to. They're heading east to Aslan's world. Um, as they're heading, again, you need to be thinking like Homer's Odyssey here. You know, it's a journey with a lot of adventures. You're learning about the spiritual life. You're learning about the struggles of the spiritual life. Um, again, even if you don't know about Job chapter 41, verse 1, if you don't know about what Job talks about, uh, you know that when you think of serpent, snake, uh, your mind should go to the devil, to the enemy, the enemy of your soul, who wants to destroy your Christian walk. Um, so when this serpent goes after the ship, uh, all, all, of, all of this biblical information about what the serpent symbolizes should come to mind to you. Um, in Job, by the way, Job 41 verse 1, uh, it describes a sea serpent. And the sea serpent, you know what the name for the sea serpent is in the book of Job? The Leviathan. That's where you get the word Leviathan from. Job 41.1, uh, there's reference to um, a sea serpent. So the ancients, you know, it might have been mythology. It might have been just what they talked about. But, you know, Jews historically are not seafaring people. And uh, there was only one port in, in ancient Israel, uh, Joppa, eventually ended up with, with Haifa. Um, but in ancient Israel, Joppa, remember the port that Jonah ran down to? Uh, that was the only port. Pe people like um, uh, the Venetians, they were seafaring, but the Jews were not. Uh, they had a terror of the ocean. And that's why in the book of Job you hear a reference to um, um, a sea serpent that may get you if you get out there on the water, the Leviathan. I'm sure you probably heard the word Leviathan just in pop culture. But that's where it comes from is the book of Job. So they encounter the, Le the Leviathan. They encounter the sea serpent. You remember what it tries to do? It tries to just strangle uh, the dawn treader, uh, tries to strangle the ship. And again, keep in mind what the ship is probably an allegory for, the church, the people of Jesus Christ. So here's the serpent trying to squeeze it to death. Um, they escape. Uh, they kind of push the sea serpent off, and they, they escape. That probably was not the greater danger of these two. Again, any time in literature, including the New Testament, you see stories put back to back. You need to stop and think why they're put back to back. For those of you in the great divorce, we talked about how in the chapter we looked at this week, there was Pam and motherly love. And then there was the person who had the lizard of lust on his shoulder. They were both discussed in the first chapter. When you see something like that, the author probably wants you to compare and contrast. Um, for instance, Luke, in chapter 10 of Luke, hope you've noticed this over your Christian life. You've got the story of the Good Samaritan, which I'm sure you know well. Do you recall what comes immediately following the story of the Good Samaritan? It's the story of Martha and Mary, and Martha choosing to sit at the feet of Jesus. So what is Luke doing in chapter 10? Go and do, that's Good Samaritan, and sit and listen is the story of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Uh, you need to make sure you do know how to do both in your Christian life. Uh, so anytime authors do that for you, uh, again, whatever they write, you have to realize they, they've put it in a certain order. They've 
included certain things. They've left certain things out. So yeah, next time you read the Good Samaritan, um, you know, if you just read the Good Samaritan by itself, you'll just be, you know, you'll be a social activist. And that's all. But you need to read the next story in, in Luke chapter 10. It's important to go and sit at the feet of the master and hear him speaking to you and let him make a disciple out of you. We have a lot of churches that just want to do the Good Samaritan thing. They don't want to do the disciple building thing. But Luke put those back to back so that you'll understand that. Uh, here in this chapter, two narrow escapes. Well, you know, there's that horrifying sea serpent. And if you look at, um, I don't like watching the movies because movies are different from the book. I did, well, because it's, it's free. I did look at the BBC version last night of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I just wanted to see the sea serpent. And they do a pretty good job, even though it's 1990s and they were low budget. The special effects are pretty good. I'm not sure if the Hollywood version even has the sea serpent. They left a lot out of the Hollywood version. But if you just look at the sea serpent, if you imagine a sea serpent, imagine a Leviathan, that appears to be you know, a horrifying thing, terrifying thing. Probably not the greater of the two dangers in this chapter. I think Lewis wants you to understand that. Uh, you can survive an attack from the serpent. Your chances of surviving an attack from the serpent is probably greater than you getting a handle on greed. That getting a handle on greed is harder. Uh, so the second narrow escape is they end up at an island. They find, well, they find some abandoned... Um, armor, and they, they'll figure out that that abandoned armor belonged to one of the lost lords of Narnia, for whom they're looking, uh, Restamar. Um, they figure out, finally, that he, he just took his armor off, and he went swimming, and when he jumped in the lake there on this island, what happened? Turned to gold. Now, again, the first thing they named this is Goldwater Island. Reap a Cheap real quickly says it shouldn't be called Goldwater, it should be called Death Water. Because here they find this water, this lake, that everything it touches turns to gold. You know, they discover that, you know, uh, the toes turn to gold, the spearhead turns to gold. They see this statue down the water, it's turned to gold. So, again, your mind should go back to, who is the famous king? Midas. Midas. Again, I don't know what they're teaching in schools these days, but when I was in school, we had to learn some Greco-Roman myths. We learned some of the stories of King Midas. Everything he touched turned to gold, and it became a curse. You remember your high school mythology. Everything Midas touched turned to gold, but became a curse. His, he touched his daughter in one of the stories. He touches his daughter, his daughter turns to gold. So when they discover this lake where everything it touches turns to gold, the first thing that happens is King Caspian. King Caspian says, we're going to claim this for Narnia. It's going to be great for the kingdom. You know, we're going to be the wealthiest country in the world. Um, and as soon as he does that, you, you notice uh, that they, on top of page 128, after they figure out what's going on, after they figure out what this lake does, they start fighting. That shouldn't shock any of us. You know, I've seen some families that they survived the death of their parent. They did not survive the settling of the estate. So yeah, as soon as they figure this lake's here and this lake turns everything it touches to water, you know, they, they start fighting. And then you notice what happens. Well, on page 128, uh, let, me, let me start where Lucy interrupts. You know, um, Edmund and Caspian are the two alpha males that start fighting. Uh, look what Lucy, how she intervenes. Middle, page 128 in my edition. Oh, stop it, both of you. That's the worst of doing anything. That's the worst of doing anything with boys. You're all such swaggering, bullying idiots. And people think C.S. Lewis was, was hard on women. 
You're all such swaggering, bullying idiots. Oh, her voice died away into a gasp, and everyone else saw what she had seen. So Lucy, and again, I want to be Lucy and Reba Cheap when I grow up. Lucy intervenes when these two alpha males are fighting um, uh, over who, who, who's going to get Goldwater Island. And then all of a sudden, as she's intervening, she sees something. And again, Lucy's usually the one that sees Aslan first. Lucy's the one that sees Aslan the most often. The text continues, across the gray hillside above them, gray for the heather was not yet in bloom. In the United Kingdom, the heather is beautiful, by the way. Without noise and without looking at them, and shining as if he were in a bright sunlight through the sun, kind of glory around Aslan, had in fact gone in, passed with slow pace the hugest line that human eyes ever seen. So there's Aslan watching them. In describing the scene, Lucy said afterwards, he was the size of an elephant. So it's a big Aslan watching them. Though at another time, she only said the size of a cart horse. Sometimes it's hard to discern, you know, exactly how we see Aslan. But it was not the size that mattered. Nobody dared to ask what it was. They knew it was Aslan. And nobody ever saw how or where he went. They looked at one another like people waking from sleep. What, what were we talking about, said Caspian. Have I been making rather an ass of myself? Sire, said Reba Cheap, this is a place with a curse on it. Let us get back on board at once, and if I might have the honor of naming this island, I should call it Deathwater. That strikes me as a very good name, Reap, said Caspian, though now that I come to think of it, I don't know why. But the weather seems to be settling, and I dare say Drenian would like to be off. What a lot, what a lot we shall have to tell him. But in fact, they had not much to tell him for the memory of the last hour had been confused. Aslan took away the memory. Aslan worked on the memory. I don't hear much about it now. Uh, back in the 90s in the Christian community, there was quite a bit being written about the healing of memories. We, we, um, pe some people started doing some weird things with that. Some people started having some memories that were not true. But there's something to be said that God, the, whole, the healing power of the Holy Spirit, we, it needs to heal some memories in our lives. Some of us are still tyrannized by the past, tyrannized of memories. Um, Aslan, and again, when I use the word Aslan, you know of whom I'm speaking. Aslan can, can heal our memories. Aslan can even heal our memories and, and help us think straight. Um, so Aslan's helping Caspian and Edmund forget about how they were going to kill each other over who owned that water and, and help them think straight as they walk away from it and go back and get aboard the ship. Again, healing our greed. C.S. Lewis is pretty adamant. Again, if you go back to that chapter that we looked at in The Great Divorce, the, the mother who so loves her son that she doesn't even want to see God. She only wants to see her hunt, son in heaven. She so loves her son. She wants to possess her son. She can't live without her son. And she's willing to take her son to hell with her. Is juxtaposed against the guy who has the lizard attached to his shoulder. And that we discover that lizard is lust. Well, the lizard gets cut off. It's painful. It's hard. It hurts. But sanctification happens. Uh, the lizard gets cut off and it turns into a great stallion and that person gets to ride off into heaven on the defeated lizard, the lust, that is now a stallion. We don't know what happens with Pam and her son. If she succeeded in so loving her son that she took him to hell with him, with her, strange love. Um, but part of what C.S. Lewis is saying there is you've got to be careful. The sins of the Spirit like that mother love gone wrong, that possessive, idolatrous mother love gone wrong, that the sins of the Spirit may be harder to deal with than sins of the flesh. You know, sometimes with sins of the flesh, you know, um, particularly those that people can see, we tend to work on harder 
then the sins people can't see. People can't see always if our hearts have turned to gold. Um, that, that, so that's, the sea serpent was not the, was not the greater danger in this text. As horrifying as it is and as wonderful as Hollywood likes to make it, uh, they, they, they just pushed a little and got that sea serpent from strangling or smashing the boat. But yeah, this about destroyed them, this greed. Again, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Bible says that. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve money and God. You've got to, have, you've got to properly order your loves. Anyway, so those are the two narrow escapes. And notice how Aslan just sort of showed up here and helped them get straight. Now, in chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, um, we're going to do just chapter 9 and 10 today, then, then 11, um, 9 and 10. We're going to do those today. Uh, so you're going to get introduced to the duffel pods, the monopods, the duffers. Um, you, you get further introduced to them with next week's reading. An amazing, amazing group. Amazing. Entertaining. Kind, kind, of like, kind of like Eustace. I'm not sure I like them, but they sure do entertain me. Um, anyway, so they make their way uh, from Deathwater Island. They get back on the ship. They set out. Uh, they end up at the Island of Voices. So they get off the ship uh, they start learning pretty quickly that they're on an island that's manicured like a Georgian English manor house. You know, it's landscaped well. So that looks neat. Um, and, you know, you, you see on the third page of chapter 9, you see one of Pauline um, Bain's sketchings of of the road leading on the island. On page 135, you see a sketching of the gate there on the island. Um, so it, it's like a Georgian, think Downton Abbey, manor house. You saw a picture on 149 of what the upper hallway looks like. Anyways, yeah, think Downton Abbey, and I think you'd be about right. So they, they're on this island that, that looks manicured. It looks landscaped. Um, don't see anybody on this island. Well, they start heading into the island down that path that you see Pauline Baines uh, sketching on page 132. Lucy has to sit down and take care of a shoe or something. She sits down, and she starts hearing something. She starts hearing voices. Well, she starts hearing thumps to begin with. You're going to learn later why it's thumps. Thump, thump, thump. Thump. Hollywood likes to show this too. Thump, thump. You know, they're just thumps on the ground. And then she starts hearing a voice. And this is where you start getting introduced a little bit to the duffel puds. They're, 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 they're entertaining. On page 133, um, Star Wars says it was, it was really dread, very dreadful because she could still see nobody at all. The whole of that park-like country still looked as quiet and empty as it had looked when they first landed. Nevertheless, only a few feet away from her, a voice spoke. And what it said was, and this is where they started entertaining me, Mates, now's our chance. Instantly, a whole chorus of other voices replied, Hear him, hear him, now's our chance, he said. Well done, Chief. You never said a truer word. What I say, continued the first voice, is get down to the shore between them and their boat and let every mother's son look to his weapons. Catch them when they try to put to sea. Hey, that's the way, shouted all the other voices. You never made a better plan, chief. Keep it up. You couldn't have made a better plan than that. Lively then, mates, mates, lively, said the first voice. Off we go. There are a bunch of superficial, always agreeable people, creatures, they don't have a thought of their own. They're not very smart. They are easily led. I hope I'm not talking about the American population. Um, that, those are the duffel puds. A little bit later, you're going to see them saying really stupid things, like water is wet. Um, yeah, uh, those are the duffel puds. You can't see them yet. You hear the thumps. You're starting to get a take on their personalities. 
they're invisible. And, you know, they don't want to just stay invisible. You're going to find out why. They don't want to just uh, stay invisible because it would be easy to stay hidden if you're invisible if they just keep their mouth shut. But they want something out of these visitors. They're going to want something especially out of the little girl with them, Lucy. So anyway, they, 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 they make their journey on, and, you know, Lucy tries to tell them a little bit about what she's seen. When they're walking into the courtyard, um, the picture on page 135, um, they see a water pump with the handle going up and down. Now, here's Eustace, who's getting better. He's still got a ways to go. Here's Eustace. When he sees the handle of that pump going up and down, he's assuming it's some kind of machinery. So he says, finally, we're in a civilized place because everything's about technology and machinery and building a better mousetrap for him. Um, it's probably some duffel pud pushing the well, but they don't see that. They just see the handle going up and down. Like later when, I just love the image, and this is done well in the movies too, um, at least the BBC that I looked at last night, uh, when the duffel puds serve them a meal and the plates are flying around and it doesn't look like anybody's carrying them. And again, not only are the plates flying around, how do they make, their, how do they move? They hop. You ever tried taking food to people as you hopped? So, you know, by the time the soup bowl gets to them, the soup's done sloshed out because they're hopping. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, even the BBC production does a good job. You see these plates flying around and food flying out of it. Yeah, those are the duffel puds. And you're going to get a visual of them later. But they just thump because, by the way, they have one, they have one leg, one foot. They just thump because that's how they hop on that one leg, that one foot. Um, but they're invisible. They're invisible. So they start figuring out, they being um, Caspian and the kids, uh, and Reba Chief, they start figuring out that they there's some invisible enemies here on this island. Um, invisible enemies are sort of hard to fight. Sort of hard to fight. Um, if you're wondering about your invisible enemies, there's a four evenings worth of podcast where I talk about the invisible world and demons and angels. So I'm glad we got some invisible friends, but we got some invisible enemies. And if you don't understand you've got some invisible enemies, you've done lost the war. Uh, that's why the New Testament tells us a lot about the devil and demons, invisible enemies. We wrestle not against uh, flesh and blood, but we wrestle against powers and principalities. Some people aren't wrestling much um, but because they don't know how to wrestle, wrestle against powers and principalities. So, yeah, here's some invisible enemies. Now, these invisible enemies are dangerous because when they shoot their arrows, just think of this one a minute. When they shoot their invisible arrows, as they shoot those arrows, they become visible. Sometimes you may not see your invisible enemies. Sometimes you can see their, their attacks, their assaults, their weapons. You can see um, what they shoot at you. Somehow that becomes visible. Again, you know, you don't have to tell your grandkids this as you're reading the story, but as adult Christians, you, you should be able to pick up what C.S. Lewis is putting down here. They're in, we're surrounded. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, as Paul, Paul says. Anyway, so they realize they got some enemies. Well, their invisible enemies begins to they begin to speak to them. Begin to speak to them, and basically learn what what these invisible enemies, these duffel puds, these duffers, these monopods want. Um, they had a spell cast on them. You remember what the spell is called? What kind of spell it is? An uglifying spell. You know, I, I will refrain from talking about anybody I know at this point, but an uglifying spell. So uh, you're going to meet Coriander, um, Coriakin later. Uh, Coriander's a spice. Coriakin later. You're going to meet him later, but he's the magician that runs this island. Uh, he cast a spell on these duffel puds, an uglifying spell. Well, they were so ugly, evidently, <laughs> they, they got tired of looking at each other. So then they voluntarily accepted an enchantment of being made invisible. Well, now they're tired of being invisible. 
So they want somebody to go to the magic book and find the spell that gets rid of the invisibility. And it takes a young girl to do that. So that's why they're interested in Lucy. Lucy can go in the house, go upstairs, go to the library, find that magic book and uh, see the spells and find the one that can make that which is invisible visible. And they want to be made visible. Uh, they say we're mortal tired of being invisible. Don't know what that would feel like, but they're tired of being invisible. And they say, you know, Lucy's got to help us on this. And if, if she doesn't, <laughs> if she doesn't, if your little girl doesn't come up to scratch, do what we want. It will be our painful duty to cut all your throats. Merely in the way of business, as you might say, and no offense, I hope. Yeah, I'm going to cut your throat, but I hope it doesn't offend you. So uh, they, they say we need Lucy to do this. And Lucy, like Reaper Cheap, is brave. She's willing to do this. Um, you know, of course, the, the alpha males are trying to protect her and don't think she can do this. But, you know, but, but Lucy volunteers. Uh, is, is I'll do it at the bottom of page 142. All right, then I'll do it, said Lucy. So Lucy is brave again. See, it's Lucy is trying to help us be brave and courageous, not be spiritual wimps, um, but really be, know how to stand up for our faith, know how to stand up for what's right. Again, reap a cheap and Lucy. I want, to be, I want to be a mixture of Lucy and reap a cheap when I grow up. If you put Lucy and reap a cheap together, you got somebody that's strong and valiant and brave and that is close to Aslan, that sees Aslan more than other people see him, that hears the voice of Aslan more than other people hear the voice. Anyway, I like Reba Cheap and Lucy. So that brings an end to chapter 9. Here comes the magician's book. So they wake up, and again, this is after their feast. And again, I love their feast. Just go look at the BBC version. Plates flying everywhere, and they're, you know, these duffel pudge are trying to feed their visitors, but they have to carry their stuff as they hop. So, yeah, you got, they progressed up the long dining hall in a series of bounds or jumps. At the highest point of each jump, a dish would be about 15 feet up in the air. Then it would come down and stop quite suddenly about three feet from the floor. So these dishes going way up and down. When the dish contained anything like soup or stews, the result was rather disastrous. Um, yeah, so they, they share the meal. They share the meal. And, of course, they're beginning to wonder. Um, Yusa says to Edmund, I'm beginning to feel very inquisitive about these people. Do you think they're human at all? More like huge grasshoppers or giant frogs, I should say. Um, and they say, be careful, don't tell Lucy that. She doesn't like insects. Um, so anyway, so uh, again, you get a little bit more introduced to the Duffelpuds. They get more entertaining as these chapters go along. Top of verse, uh, not top of verse, top of page 146. The meal would have been pleasanter if it had not been so exceedingly messy. And also if the conversation had not consisted entirety of agreements. One thing C.S. Lewis loved, and one of the reasons he finally marries Joy Davidman late in life, he finally met somebody who could give him an intellectual run for his money. He could have debates, discussions, serious talks um, with joy, like he had been doing for decades with his fellow Oxford scholars. He was not much on small talk or talking about nonsense. Um, so here, here are these kids and Caspian and Reba Cheap. They said it would be more enjoyable if they had not been so messy and if they weren't also agreeable with each other because they're listening to, to, to these people. Again, there are people out there who have, they cannot think for themselves, and they do get a little exhausting after a while if they want us to do their thinking for them. Anyway, notice what they say. The invisible people agreed about everything. Indeed, most of their remarks were the sort it would not be easy to disagree with. So they're saying superficial things. What I always say, this, they're quoting the duffel punch. What I always say is, when a chap's hungry, he likes some vigils, some food. Well, yeah. Or getting dark now, always does at night. Or even, ah, you've come over the water, powerful, wet stuff, ain't it? Yeah, you know, that's why I like, and I think I said this to maybe the group on Monday. 
Yeah, beware of superficiality. Our culture is becoming a, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep, and we don't teach logic anymore. We don't teach philosophy anymore. Uh, in 1984, the book was written by Alan Bloom entitled The Closing of the American Mind, and it has about snapped shut since 1984. Um, you know, I see stuff on Facebook now, like, and this is just love is love. Love is love. Well, I don't care what that means or what they, why they're putting it on. I was trained. I had to take logic in undergraduate. So I know. I don't think the culture around me now knows. It's, that, that's what you call a tautology. When you say love is love, that's a tautology, which means logically ridiculous. You know, to say love is love, that's like saying food is food. Air is air. You've said nothing. You've absolutely said nothing. You haven't defined love. You haven't said what it is, what it's not. But in this culture, you can say love is love, and people go, ooh, that's profound. There are a bunch of duffel puds out there jumping around. You know, the closing of the American mind. You know, one of the books I've been reading recently is by Carl Truman. Truman, and it's interesting, his name is spelled not like the president, but his name is spelled T-R-U-E. M-A-N, true man. Carl Truman has written a, a classic book that will go down in history called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. How did we get to this culture? The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So his publishers went to him and said, please, please make it simpler, <laughs> abridge it. So he did. He wrote a, a smaller version, which is what I'm reading, uh, This Strange World, Strange New World. And it shows the history of how you start with the Enlightenment, you go through Rousseau, you go through Karl Marx, you go through Nietzsche, you go through everybody accepting the myth of progress, you go through um, the baby boomers who we all thought everything's about us, about what we want and how we need everything. You go through the sexual revolution of the 60s, you mainstream the sexual revolution in, in our age. And we wonder why people are saying stupid things like love is love. Yeah, we know how we got here. We really do know how we got here um, for those who are willing to ask and read the book. Um, but, I mean, we know historically how we got here. You know, the closing of the American mind, which, by the way, is still in print and still selling well about Alan Bloom, the closing of the American mind. Yeah, I mean, it's just absolutely, yeah, we're surrounded by a world of duffel puds. And, you know, I mean, least, you know, least Lucy knew that when they said, uh, you know, oh, you've come over the water, powerful wet stuff, ain't it? That's not very profound. They haven't said much to say water's wet. Yeah, it is. You know, there was a time Yogi Berra could make, make, make himself famous saying dumb things that are sort of weird and strange. And now our culture can have it all over. The, and we can't, we can't read a text now. We can't reflect on what we just heard. And, you know, I, 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 I see things all the time, you know, two pages worth of saying nothing. Um, you know, anyway, beware of the duffel puds, you know, or maybe more importantly, try not to be a duffel pud. Be careful how you're training your mind. Be careful what you're pouring in there. Um, yeah, you know, some people, some, you know, we, we do rather run from east to west than stop in the middle. Some people do a jo good job of keeping their mind in shape. Some people do a good job of keeping their bodies in shape. We need to keep both in shape. And um, anyways, here's the duffel puds. They get more entertaining. They get more entertaining as they go. Anyway, so Lucy accepts the challenge. She's going to go up the stairs in this Downton Abbey type home. She's going to walk down the hallway by herself. She just asks, can she do it in the day, not the night? She gets to do it in the day, say sleep. She goes up there. She makes her way to the um, library. She finds the book of spells. She finds the book of spells. She went up, page 151, she went up to the desk laid her hands on the book, her fingers tingled when she touched it as if it were full of electricity. She tried to open it, but couldn't at first. This, however, was only because it was fastened by two leaden clasps. 
And when she had undone these, it opened easily enough. And what a book it was. And um, she starts reading the book. It just starts out with spells. First spell is, you know, how you cure warts. Um, but she runs across a spell. Oh, by the way, um, at, the, at the top of top of page 150, show you how our cultures change. At the top of page 153, where they, they make a reference to um, a human being having his head turned into an ass's head, and you have in parentheses there, as they did to poor bottom. 1950s, they knew who bottom, who's bottom? Midsummer's Dream by Shakespeare, character in Midsummer's Dream. He didn't even footnote footnote that in the 1950s. Now, just let that sink in for a moment. He didn't footnote that in a children's book in the 1950s. Yeah, the slamming shut of the American mind. Anyway, so she looks at the book. She runs across a, um, a spell, an infallible spell to make beautiful her that uttereth it beyond the lot of mortals. Okay, here's a spell to make the person that uses it beautiful. Well, Lucy, Lucy never was as beautiful as Susan. Lucy was jealous of Susan. Lucy envied Susan. So talk about jealousy, talk about envy. Um, that's who Lucy was. By the way, in the BBC version, Lucy's pretty homely in the BBC version compared to Susan. Well, here she suddenly sees a spell. If she utters it, she will be more beautiful than Susan. Um, so she's sitting here thinking about uttering this spell. And, you know, she, she's thinking about that she could be more beautiful than Lucy. And then, you know, people may start going to war to obtain her, this beautiful one. You know, think Helen of Troy. They're going to war to, to, to you know, wars will happen. Fury of kings and dukes. Uh, no one would even care about Susan anymore because Lucy was so beautiful. So look on page 154. I will say the spell, says Lucy. I don't care, I will. She said, I don't care because she had a strong feeling that she mustn't. But when she looked back at the opening words of the spell, there in the middle of the writing, where she felt quite sure there had been no picture before, she found the great face of a lion, of the lion, Aslan himself, staring into hers. So here she is heading down the path to vanity, jealousy, envy, pride. She looks back on the page and there's Aslan staring at her. It was painted such a bright gold that it seemed to be coming toward her out of the page. And indeed, she never was quite sure afterwards, afterward that it hadn't really moved a little. At any rate, she knew the expression on the face quite well. He was growling, and you could see most of his teeth. She became horribly afraid and turned over the page at once. Um, I mean, I really hope you have felt Aslan growling at you at some points in your life. In the Christian faith, we call that the conviction of sin. When you do something and you feel Aslan growling at you. If you have moved beyond that to where you can do anything you want to do and you don't feel Aslan growling at you, that's a, that's a dangerous spiritual place to be. You know, um, yeah, that's the conviction of sin. That leads us to repentance. Yeah, you no one to be led to repentance if they aren't convicted of their sin. If they can justify all their behavior, and they're always, I'm okay, you're okay, yeah, there's no conviction of sin in that worldview. They, they will never feel Aslan growling at them. I'm grateful, I'm not happy about it, but I'm grateful when I sense Aslan growling at me. And I usually know I'm doing wrong before he ever growls. But sometimes I need to hear the growl to make me deal with it. So anyway, there's a spell. So then so she decides she's not doing that one. So she sees another spell. This is where, one, if you cast this spell, you will always know what your friends think about you. Do you really want to cast that spell? Well, you know, so she sees this image. 
She sees a picture of a third-class carriage in a train with two schoolgirls sitting in it. She knew them at once. They were Marjorie Preston and Anne Featherstone, friends of hers. Only now it was much more than a picture. It was alive. She could see the telegraph post flicking past outside window. Then gradually, like when the radio's coming on, she could hear what they were saying. And she hears one sort of say something a little nasty about her or Lucy. Again, do you always want to know what your friends think or do you always want to hear what your friends are saying? Uh, Aslan's going to tell her eavesdropping is not a good idea. And it may not lead to, it may not give what you want. On page 156, uh, this is Lucy. And again, I'm, we're, watching, we're watching how Edmund and then Eustace has, have to be sanctified and get better. Well, Lucy has her moments here. Which I, I bring, that gives me a strange sense of comfort. And I see that Lucy's not perfect. Well, you jolly well won't have the chance, uh, any other term, you know, being friends with her. Uh, shouted Lucy, two faced little beast. But the sound of her own voice at once reminded her that she was talking to a picture and that the real Marjorie was far away in another world. Well, said Lucy to herself, I, I did think better of her than that. I did all sorts of things for her last term, and I stuck to her when not many of the other girls would, would and she knows it too, and to Ann Featherstone of all people, I wonder what all my friends, I wonder, I wonder, are all my friends the same? There are lots of other pictures. No, I won't look at them anymore. I won't, I won't. And with great effort, she turned the page over. She turned over the page, but not before a large, angry tear had splashed on it. Where'd the tear come from? Aslan, I think. It's obvious, Aslan. That's where... Aslan's wa Aslan watches us. Sometimes he growls at us. Sometimes we just break his heart. Um, and Aslan's going to have something to say about that. Then she reads a story that's the loveliest story she ever heard. Um, but then she can't ever go back to it, and she can never remember it all. But there was a sense that it was the most beautiful story she ever heard. Um, who knows, maybe gospel story. We need to keep hearing it and hearing it and hearing it and hearing it. That's why a lot of us have a table in the middle of our churches that say, do this in remembrance of me, because we forget the story. You know, it's the greatest story you've ever heard. We can't keep remembering it. We forget it. Um, anyway, but finally she makes her way to the, 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 the spell to, to make hidden things visible. And that's what she's there to do for the sake of the duffel puds. She's going to, um, she's, she's, she's going to offer that spell. And in offering that spell, she's going to make lots of things that were invisible, visible, including Coriakin and including Aslan. Sometimes we have to work a little bit to make Jesus present in our lives. I mean, some of us see Jesus all around us. Some of us can't see Jesus yet. We've got to help them see the, the visible Jesus around them. Anyway, um, so she does it. Everything visible, not only the thumpers. Um, there might be lots of other invisible things hanging about a place like this. There sure are. Again, there's a whole invisible world. Nicene Creed. He, God, has created all things visible and invisible. Yeah, don't be oblivious to the invisible world around you. Um, we need to try to make the invisible world visible. Again, four nights of adult vacation Bible school. We need to try to make sure we pay attention to the, to the invisible world around us. Look at the text. That's where we'll wrap up. At that moment, she heard heavy footfalls coming along the corridor behind her. And of course, she remembered that she had been told about the magician, Coriakin, walking in his bare feet and making no more noise than a cat. It is always better to turn around than to have anything creeping up behind your back. Lucy did so. I hate to have my back to an open door. When I go to the restaurant, I sit with my back to a wall. I just don't like having a bunch of you folks behind my back. Um, not sure what that comes from, but anyway, I'm like Lucy in that. She doesn't want to have her back to, to, to an open door. Anyway, then her face lit up for a moment, but of course she didn't know it. She looked almost as beautiful as that other Lucy in the picture. This is a different kind of beauty. And she ran forward with a little cry of delight and with her arms stretched out for what stood in the doorway was Aslan himself. 
the lion, the highest of all high kings. And he was solid and real and warm. And he let her kiss him and bear herself in his shining mane. And from the low earthquake-like sound that came from inside him, Lucy even dared to think that he was purring. Oh, Aslan, said she, it was kind of you to come. I have been here all the time, he said, but you have just made me visible. Aslan, said Lucy, almost a little reproachfully, don't make fun of me as if anything I could do would make you visible. It did, said Aslan. Do you think I wouldn't obey my own rules? Now, C.S. Lewis is a historic Christian. He's a member of the Church of England. That's our mother church, for those of us that are Methodist. We believe in the sacraments. Now, I know that for a whole lot of people in my congregation this past Sunday, when I said, this is the body of Christ broken for you, and I said, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, the only, they, only thing they saw was a strange little wafer and a little cup of grape juice. But in the historic faith, we know that Aslan follows his rules, and he says, I'll be, known, I'll be made known to you in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. So in just sharing that juice, that bread, we are making visible, we're having a holy communion, a holy fellowship, a holy sharing time with Jesus. We're making him visible. You know, here's the body, here's the blood of Christ. Now again, if you don't have any concept of the invisible world, of how the invisible world can be made visible, if you're captured by the enlightenment and the industrial revolution and the scientific age, that's not, that's, that's not even good tasting bread I gave you on Sunday. And you're not going to see anything, but we used to say in seminary, those wafers, it, it, took, it took more faith to believe their bread than to believe they're the body of Christ. You know, I mean, if you don't see anything, yeah, we believe the invisible can be made visible. That's core to the Christian faith. Uh, everything from the incarnation of Jesus Christ to how we use water, to how we use oil, to how we use bread, to how we use wine, to how we use stained glass windows, and some traditions, incense, the list goes on. We are working to make the invisible visible. Because he said he would let this happen. You know, think about the communion service post-Easter, after the walk on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus broke bread and their eyes were opened, and they knew it was Jesus. Yeah, most of us see C.S. Lewis's theology of sacraments behind this. And um, particularly if you come from a tradition like Methodist or Roman Catholic or Episcopalian or Lutheran, if you come from a tradition that believes strongly in the sacraments, I hope you have a sacramental theology too. Um, in the Protestant Reformation, I have people ask me all the time, how do, you, how do you pick a church? And a lot of times I want to say to people, well, the way you don't pick a church is by location and who's there. Whether, I don't care if your great-grandmother's been there. That's not bad stuff, but that's not how you pick a church. Ever since the Protestant Reformation, we have defined what a true church is. First thing I say, if you want to pick a church, pick a true church. So since the Protestant Reformation, in all of our articles of faith, including Methodist articles of faith, which come out of the Church of England articles of faith, we define a true church. And I don't know why this is not ingrained in Christians' mind. Well, y'all don't read Reformation documents like I wish you did. But uh, even the articles of Methodist, the Methodist articles of religion, I can't get Methodist preachers to read the Methodist articles of religion. But the Methodist Articles of Religion, it, it, it includes that historic definition of a church. A congregation, got to get together, a congregation of faithful, they said men, I'll say people, a congregation of faithful people gathered where the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are, are duly or rightfully administered. There's some churches out there, I don't care what their sign says out front. 
They may be a social club. They may be a social organization. They may be, you know, when I used to drag my wife, and she didn't let me do it long, but when I used to drag my wife to a lot of different churches as a superintendent, sometimes I'd get three in on a Sunday morning. My wife would walk at them and say, I learned this from her. She, I, we can learn great theology from people who have not studied theology professionally, and sometimes they do a better job. We'd walk out of churches, and my wife would say, mm, that was more of a family reunion than worship. She was right a lot of times. It's more of a social gathering, family reunion, group therapy, listening to a guru, listening to a life coach. Yeah, just because you got a bunch of people in a room together and you're singing some good religious music, you need to evaluate that too. So what is a true church? A congregation of faithful believers gathered where the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are duly administered. You know, we do so much in the church's life now, that gets lost. That gets lost. Churches are busier in the 21st century than they've ever been. And it's not bad stuff. It's really not bad stuff. But if we lose the core definition of what a church is, yeah, I'd probably be looking for somewhere else to go. If, I, if I'm not in a place that doesn't strive to be a gathering of faithful disciples, people, where the word of God is, the pure word of God is preached. That should be the goal. And the sacraments duly administered, that should be the goal. I, I would heavily question who's taking, who's taking my time. So I hope you have a sacramental theology. Just I hope you have a theology of the word of God and the importance of the word of God. Uh, those are the two things that make a church a church. Um, Anyway, I go back to C.S. Lewis. He was a churchman. He was Anglican. He, he took communion every Sunday morning at the 8 a.m. early service at Holy Trinity, Headington Quarry. Uh, the 8 a.m. service was always Eucharist in that parish back then. Uh, and today, it's, both their services are Eucharist. But back then, you had early service was Eucharist. The, the later service was uh, morning prayer. He always went to the early service partly because it was Eucharist, but really, and don't, I don't necessarily agree with this, but just to give you his personality, he also loved the early service. He and Warney would go to the early service because there were less people there and there was no organ. He didn't like lots of people and he didn't was not fond of the organ. And um, he just liked going to the 8 o'clock service. It was smaller, more intimate, um, less music. Um, anyway. But he, he did attend to the sacrament every Sunday morning. Anyway, so um, here's Aslan talking to... So after he's talked about making the invisible visible, after a little pause, he spoke again, Child, I think you've been eavesdropping. Eavesdropping? You listen to your two schoolfellows, what your two schoolfellows are saying about you. Oh, that, I, I never thought that was eavesdropping, Aslan. Wasn't it magic? Spying on people by magic is the same thing as spying on them in any other way. And you have misjudged your friend. She is weak, and she loves you. She was afraid of the older girl and said what she does not mean. So she just said what she thought she needed to say. Um, last remark, because this is so important, particularly in our culture today. Notice what Aslan is saying. He's saying, don't, he's not saying, don't ever judge anybody anywhere. Don't ever pass judgment on good behavior, bad behavior. Don't ever pass judgment on what's right and wrong. He's not saying that. I hear people in this culture quote Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. And at that point they say, you have the right to judge nothing ever. End of story. In the Christian faith, we've had, we've been around for a while. We've thought about this one. And as I'm saying it here, we have a right to judge behavior. We do. We have a right to reverence the Ten Commandments. We have a right to reverence all the moral laws we find in the New Testament. We have a right to do that. So don't tell me that, you know, if I say adultery is wrong, you know, go after God and Moses over that one, not just me. I mean, we have a right to say adultery is wrong. Lying is wrong. The Big Ten. I know this crowd knows what they are. So we have the right to judge behavior and lifestyle. Now what we should avoid 
is doing what Lucy did. Now, this is where our culture is so confused, it, the Christian culture in our age. Notice what Lucy did. She didn't pass from judging abstractly human behavior. She's judging an individual. From her limited knowledge, her slice of life, her one eavesdropping, she's passing judgment on that individual, on that human being. Now, we've got to judge. You know, I think cannibalism's bad, whether you think it is or not. I think cannibalism's bad. Nazism, let's not do it. The list goes on. We've got to judge. But now what we refrain from, because we've read Jesus, read Sermon on the Mount, and now you've read Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Be really careful about judging another human being. She didn't know the whole story. Her friend was not, did not hate Lucy. Her friend was afraid of the other friend. So her friend just said what her other friend uh, thought she wanted to hear. So she said something negative about Lucy. So Lucy misjudged the friend. When you go after another human being, you don't know the whole story. You know your little slice. You don't know the whole story. We don't have the skill or the expertise. We need to be very careful about judging another human being. That's why even in a court setting, we put, how many people have in a jury? Twelve. Yeah, you need to be careful. You need to be careful when you judge another human being. Sometimes we need to. I will judge Adolf Hitler. But even if I judge Adolf Hitler, I still don't know Hitler's heart. I, only God can see the heart. You know, I might judge him for killing six million Jews and not even understand he wanted to kill 12 million. So we, we don't always know the individual. I don't know why in our culture today we can't get this judging thing right. You know, as a Christian now, I'm told that we can't I can't even say adultery is wrong. I can't even say fornication is wrong. I had one old man call me up one day on the phone and ask me to define fornication. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I thought I was on candy camera. Yeah, I, I, you know, I explained it to him and, and it said, bad idea. We, we, we judge fornication. We judge sex outside of marriage. I mean, we, now we're in a culture that judge not lest ye be judged. What Jesus is saying there is don't judge the... The, the moat in your, the splinter in your other person's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. He's talking about individual judgment. He's not talking about judgment as a culture, as a faith. He's talking about individual, and he even goes on to say, I wish people would read the rest of what Jesus says, judge, judge not lest you be judged. Judge in the same measure with which you want to be judged. So even if you attempt at judging another human being, Give them the same mercy you want. Give them the same grace you want. Just understand, you might misunderstand what you're seeing, what you're hearing. You don't know the whole story. Um, you might fault that, that guy for leaving his wife, and you don't know that she beat him every night. You don't know the whole story. So as a culture, we, we've done judgment for 2,000 years in the Christian church. We can judge lifestyles. Just be very careful. We can judge theology. We can judge doctrine. We can judge people's benefit to culture. Um, or certain behaviors benefit beneficial or not to culture. But just be careful when you see two little girls talking, uh, when you pass judgment on what you think you're hearing there. Because uh, you may not know the whole story. And that's why Aslan's not saying, don't ever judge, Lucy. You have to judge. But be careful when you judge other individuals. And again, go, this culture just needs to recapture that. The Christian culture in this world needs to recapture that. You know, there's two ways to just stop conversation among Christians today. Well, everybody has their own interpretation of the Bible. That means stop talking about the Bible, or judge not. That means at that point you got to stop talking. You know, we're in a culture that just doesn't want us to talk about important things. So again, again, the closing of the American mind, that's from a secular perspective. You know, we used to be able to think through some of these things as, as people, 
and particularly as Christians. So, duffel puds. Next week's much more fun because you get to see the duffel puds and hear some more of their ridiculous um, conversation. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for these people who will endure this time on Wednesday mornings. We're grateful for the work that you're doing in our lives. We pray that you'll grow us up and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.